Welcome to the Human Experience Podcast, the only podcast designed to fuse your left and right brain hemispheres and feed it the most entertaining and mentally engaging topics on the planet. As we approach our ascent, please make sure your frontal, temporal and occipital lobes are in their full upright position. As you take your seat of consciousness, relax your senses and allow us to take you on a journey. We are the Intimate Strangers. Thank you for listening. And how to get out of it is simple. I didn't say it's easy. I said it's simple. Mm -hmm. And that is to recognize that you right now are a full and complete human being, regardless of your external circumstances. And I remember thinking that all of this was useful only if you were sitting quietly thinking peaceful thoughts, but not when you came to the hurly-burly, then it was actually pretty useless. But somehow I knew that wasn't true. I knew that this was very useful. Maybe even the only thing that was useful, I just hadn't figured out how to make use of it. You want something, you think if this happens, I'll be happy, you get it, and you're thrilled for a day, a week, and then it simply becomes part of the background of your life and you move on. And now you want something else. It's the human experience, but we never learn from it. That's the problem. Suffering begins the moment you label that event this is bad, this is terrible, I cannot bear it. And the moment you stick that label on it, at that instant, suffering begins. Initially, when I did that, I felt like a fraud because, you know, how can I teach all of this when I hadn't figured out how to make use of it? But I kind of thought, let's begin and we'll kind of muddle our way through and learn together. And that's exactly what happened. We're in the human predicament, Xavier. As long as we're in the human predicament, stuff will happen. There will be serious illness and death. There will be relationship problems. There will be business reverses. There will be financial setbacks. All of that is part of being in the human condition. But as these things come about, you will deal with them as appropriate, but you will be anchored in a very deep sense of well-being. That's what I mean by an ideal life. What's up, folks? Xavier Katana here. Our episode today is with Dr. Sri Kumar Rao. Dr. Rao is a, quote, happiness teacher. He is an advisor to senior business executives. He used to be an executive at Warner Communications and the publishing company McGraw-Hill. He created a popular MBA course, Creativity and Personal Mastery. He's written a number of books on this idea of pursuing happiness and how our variations in thinking change the perspective that we take on life. We covered many aspects of his work in this conversation. I really enjoyed it. I think you guys will enjoy it as well. If you like this show, get to our Patreons page. You can support us there. Get to our Twitter account where we post some of the best content and all that at the Human XP at the end of those respective websites. Here is my guest, Dr. Sri Kumar Rao. Hopefully you guys enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Thank you so much for listening. The Human Experience is in session. My guest for today is Dr. Sri Kumar Rao. Dr. Rao, thank you so much for being here. I'm fascinated by your work. Tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into this. 
Thank you, Xavier. It's my pleasure to be on the show. I enjoyed meeting you at uh, the Mind Valley reunion. All right, how did I get started on this? Actually, it began as a personal quest. I came to America as a student. I got a PhD in business from Columbia Business School. I worked in corporate America and was hugely successful in my early days. And then I got burnt out by corporate politics. I went into academe thinking that there would be no politics in academe. Boy, was I wrong. Mm. I was dead wrong. And I found uh, after some years that I was feeling very sorry for myself. Uh, peers, my colleagues had gone far ahead of me financially and uh, in other ways because they remained in the corporate world. And uh, I was stagnating. And all my life, I'd been doing a lot of reading, spiritual biography, mystical autobiography. They would take me to a very nice place. Then I came back to the real world, and I was stuck and sorry for myself. Hmm. And I remember thinking that all of this was useful only if you were sitting quietly thinking peaceful thoughts, but not when you came to the hurly-burly, then it was actually pretty useless. But somehow I knew that wasn't true. I knew that this was very useful, maybe even the only thing that was useful. I just hadn't figured out how to make use of it. Mm -hmm. So one day I got my idea, which is, why don't I take the teachings of the world's great masters, strip them of religious, cultural, and other connotations, and adapt them so that they're acceptable to intelligent people in a post-industrial society. And the thought of doing something like that made me come alive. So I created that course and it did well. I modified it and offered it again, it did better. I moved it to Columbia Business School in 1999 and it exploded. It was the only course at Columbia, which was a university-wide draw. I had students from uh, business, uh, law, School of International and Public Affairs, Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, Journalism, Teachers College, all over the place. Mm -hmm. And it got written up, you know, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, Time Magazine, Fortune, Forbes, Business Week, and then it just exploded and took over my life. So that's how it uh, came to be. So in your life, there was a personal struggle with, you know, corporate politics, and you decided to take these teachings from great masters, people that you found were great masters, and sort of repackage that into your own work. Yes. Initially, when I did that, I felt like a fraud because, you know, how can I teach all of this when I hadn't figured out how to make use of it? But I kind of thought, let's begin and we'll kind of muddle our way through and learn together. And that's exactly what happened. You know, in your book, Are You Ready to Succeed? You talk about an ideal life. When we talk about an ideal life, what kind of factors are we considering? Are we considering happiness, success, fame, money? I mean, well, what are we talking about when we talk about an ideal life? All of that, Xavier, and that's where the trap is. Most persons, when you talk about an ideal life, tend to use outside parameters to describe that. Uh, you know, how big a house they have, what kind of a relationship they have with their partner, what kind of a relationship they have with their children, uh, how much power they have, what's their position in an organizational hierarchy, how much influence they have, and all kinds of things like that. Uh, I used to be like that too. Mm -hmm. Then I discovered that that's flat out wrong. The ideal life actually is if you wake up every morning and you have deep meaning and purpose, you feel deep down that you are exactly where you were supposed to be. If you feel deep down a very, 
very, very strong sense of I am okay. A, a feeling of contentment, not, not a minor contentment, which is like you don't wish for anything different, but a really deep-rooted sense of well-being. And this sense of well-being never leaves you. We're in the human predicament, Xavier. As long as we're in the human predicament, stuff will happen. There will be serious illness and death. There will be relationship problems. There will be business reverses. There will be financial setbacks. All of that is part of being in the human condition. Mm -hmm. But as these things come about, you will deal with them as appropriate, but you will be anchored in a very deep sense of well-being. That's what I mean by an ideal life. There was a TED Talk that you did called Plug Into Your Hardwired Happiness. You, you talk about how happiness is part of our innate nature. How is it that happiness is hardwired into our DNA? Why do you think this is so? Oh, well, it's not I think this is so. It's I know this is so. And actually, I've got a very simple uh, method by which you can discover that for yourself. Uh, and anybody who's listening, have you ever been in a, a situation where you were struck by some scene of tremendous beauty? Maybe a snow-covered mountain, maybe a rainbow, maybe the storm-tossed ocean, something like that. And it struck you as so spectacularly beautiful that it took you outside of yourself to a place of great calm and serenity. Mm -hmm. yeah. Virtually all of us can remember some such instance. What happened at that instant is that somehow we were able to accept the universe exactly as it was. We didn't wish for more snow on the mountain. We didn't wish for the rainbow to be 200 yards uh, away from where it is. And the moment we accepted the universe exactly as it was, and we didn't place a demand on it that it has to be different, then we didn't have to do anything to experience the joy that's an innate part of us. It kind of rose up and enveloped us. We have that capacity right now because our, our life right now with all of the problems that we have, all of the problems we think we have, but we are resisting. And in that resistance, we are trying to control the universe. And uh, we get into what I call the if-then model, which is if this happens, then I will be happy. And the if-then model is flawed. That's how we learn to be unhappy. And because we have learned to be unhappy, we don't experience the happiness, which is an innate part of us. It's hmm. a great segue there. Uh, also in this TED Talk, you talk about mental models, uh, you know, mm -hmm. and this is affecting the happiness or the mood structure of everyone, anyone who's holding these models. Can you define what these d different models are, please? Well, there's a whole pile of models. Each one of us has uh, dozens, possibly hundreds of models. We've got a model for everything. We've got a model for how do I get a job? How do I get ahead in my job? How do I build my career? How do I find a person to marry? How do I bring up my children? How do I pick a movie that I'm going to see? We've got dozens of models. And these models may or may not be in conflict with each other. The problem is not that we have models. The problem is that we don't recognize that these are models. We think that this is the way the world is. But this is not the way the world is. This is our model of the way the world is. And the more we believe in that model, the more evidence we seem to get that this, in fact, is the way the world is. And we construct a silo into which we lock ourselves. We do it to ourselves, but we think it happened to us. 
One of the most powerful models is what I call the if-then model. Mm -hmm. And if-then model basically says, if something happens, then I will be happy. And that's not uh, true. Okay. But we believe that it's true and we keep getting stuck in that. That's how we learn to be unhappy. So what I'm hearing is that our innate nature is just happiness. Just, you know, and it, we are in this... Happiness, not in the sense that we understand it, because in the West, we tend to talk about happiness in a in very trivial terms. You know, I had a great ice cream, so I'm happy. I had a wonderful dinner, so I'm happy. And that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the momentary flashes of pleasure or the momentary flashes when you're not actively unhappy. I'm talking about, as I mentioned earlier, a deep sense of well-being, a knowledge that you are okay. And this is a, you know, comes from deep within your gut and spills out and occupies every part of you. That's what I'm talking about. That is our innate nature. So I thought the human condition was suffering. You know, I, th I thought the human condition is to, like, to err is to be human kind of thing. So you're saying that this idea of we want the next thing. It's, it's like, if, I'm, if I make this much money a year, then I will be happy. But then you make that much money a year, and it, it, doesn't, it doesn't change your level of happiness. Exactly correct. In fact, in my programs, I have uh, an exercise. I don't do it very often, but I've done it many times in the past, where I have people actually go back 10 years Right now, you're a bundle of, if I have this, if this happens, I will be happy. And 10 years ago, you were a bundle of, if this happens, I will be happy. Mm -hmm. So go back and reconstruct your life 10 years ago. Consult your old diaries, talk to people who knew you at that time, speak to your parents, and reconstruct what were the, what were the things that you were hung up on 10 years ago. Odds are pretty good that today you have most of them, or many of them. And it doesn't make any difference to your level of well-being. You simply want different things now. Hmm. So this is a classic example of you want something, you think, if this happens, I'll be happy. You get it, and you're thrilled for a day, a week, and then it simply becomes part of the background of your life, and you move on. And now you want something else. It's the human experience, but we never learn from it. That's the problem. You know, do you think that our society is built on this sort of if-then principle? Of course it is. We have this tremendous industry, the advertising industry, that is constantly telling us that if we want to be fulfilled, we need to get X, whatever X is. You know, whether it's cosmetics, whether it's alcohol, whether it's a drug that will... Uh, combat your uh, erectile dysfunction or what, whatever it is. We're always bombarded by stuff. And the implicit promise and all of that is if you get this, then you will be happy. That's fascinating. I, I really find it interesting. I, you talk about how ambition is, is bad for you. you know, I, I find myself to be very ambitious. I mean, why is this bad for you? All right. Uh, actually, we need to be a little more nuanced about that. So I'm not saying that ambition is bad for you. I am saying that ambition has to be harnessed properly. Otherwise, it can be bad for you. Okay? By definition, ambition means that I am unhappy with where I am, or if I'm not unhappy with where I am, I believe that I will be happier someplace else. 
And therefore, I'm going to go to that someplace else, whether whatever the ambition is for, whether it's the accumulation of wealth, of power, of fame, you know, I have to do that in order for me to be happy. And ambition in that sense is designed to make you unhappy where you are. Hmm. And this is simply buying into the if-then model. The way to use ambition is different, and then it stops being ambition, which is I am perfectly content and fulfilled where I am, but I have a vision of this is the way the world should be, and I'm going to strive to make that vision happen. And I'm going to strive to make that vision happen, not because if that vision happens, I will be happier, but because you know I've got to do something, and this is my purpose in life, and I will try to make that happen. If it does, wonderful. If it doesn't, wonderful. It does not in any way affect my well-being. And if that is the attitude by which you, with which you start, then hey, you're gold. And it's a, it's a very zen sort of way of being, you know? I mean, yes. we are so stuck in this sort of carrot, you know, in front of us and we're on this treadmill and the carrot stays this sort of the same distance. You know, so, I mean, what what is the solution to this? How do we solve this issue? Is it part of our mental conditioning? It is definitely part of our conditioning. We have been conditioned from a very young age by everybody, our parents, teachers, coaches, friends, media. They all work together to deliver the same message. And how to get out of it is simple. I didn't say it's easy. I said it's simple. Mm -hmm. And that is to recognize that you right now are a full and complete human being, regardless of your external circumstances. And you act out of that fullness. And when you do that, you will find that life slips into place in marvelous fashions. But understanding intellectually that you're a full and complete human being and experiencing that for yourself are two very, very, very different things. So, I mean, are we talking about outcome independence here? Are we talking about yes. being detached Absolutely. from yes. the results of something and, and just sort of being in the now? We are talking about outcome independence. I am going to try to do something. I want to be CEO of my company, and I'm going to try my level best and do what it takes to be CEO. And if I succeed, wonderful. If I don't succeed, wonderful. See, the mistake most of us make, Xavier, is we live our lives the following way. I set a goal for myself. I reach my goal. Life's a blast. Or I set a goal to myself and I failed. Life sucks. So we live on a sinusoidal curve, oscillating between elation and despair, and we spend far more time at the despair end of the spectrum. That's a lousy way to live life. Mm -hmm. The way out of that is to invest in the process. Do not invest in the outcome. It's outcome independent. If I succeed, wonderful. If I don't succeed, wonderful. The mistake we make is the following. We think that the value of goals is achieving the goal. But in reality, the value of the goal is that it sets direction. And when you try your level best to reach the goal, the benefit to you is not whether you reach the goal or not, because that is something that is outside your control. The benefit to you is the learning and growth that happen in you as you try your level best to achieve the goal. 
So you cannot lose. If you succeed, super, that's a bonus. If you don't succeed, you still had the learning and growth, so you win. Hmm. You cannot lose. So this is an idea of the construct being built in our mind that mm-hmm. if said event happens, then I've, you know, quote, won. If this doesn't happen, then I've lost. And then we sort of act out based on that mental model. Exactly correct. Interesting. So, you know, you talk about having a grand vision to work towards. Can you give us more information about this grand vision idea? Yeah. See, what happens is we tend to live in a very me-centered world, Xavier. And by that, I mean, no matter what happens, we very quickly bring it down to what's the impact on me in big things and small things. For example, your spouse says, uh, gee, you know, I'm going to be very late. So I will not, let's assume it's your spouse's turn to make dinner and your spouse calls and says, hey, you know, I'm going to be very late. Sorry, I can't make dinner. And your immediate thought is, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to eat out or do I take leftovers? Are there any leftovers in the refrigerator or what do I do? And your thought goes there immediately. Or your partner says, uh, gets a great job offer. And you immediately think in terms of how is this going to affect our relationship? Your boss leaves the company and you immediately think about who's the next person going to be and what's my relationship going to be with that person. Mm -hmm. So no matter what happens, we bring it down to what's the impact on me. So when we live in a me-centered universe, we are going to live an essentially mediocre existence punctuated with flashes of pleasure, but by and large meaningless. That's just the way it is. So if you want to get to the vision I laid off and laid out earlier about an ideal life, you've got to find a cause which is bigger than you are, a cause which brings a greater good to a greater community, and you have tremendous flexibility in defining both the greater good and the greater community. And unless you can find something like that, such that you can subsume, if not your whole life, at least a big chunk of it, you're not going to reach the vision I laid out. That is the vision I have. So I uh, have a favorite story there, and this story consists of uh, uh, medieval, it's set in medieval England, where an architect is going to the site of construction of a great cathedral, and he comes across three people, each of whom is doing the exact same thing. They're taking a block of stone and putting it on a bigger block of stone and beating it with a hammer till it breaks. And he asks the first one what he's doing, and he says, you know, can't you see I'm breaking rocks? And the second one says, I'm helping build a wall behind me. And the third one says, I'm helping build a grand cathedral. And when it's over, people are going to come from all over the world, and they will be inspired, and I will have had a small role to play in that. Mm -hmm. The third one was the only one who understood or recognized the architect. And he said, truth be told, I don't like doing it. It's backbreaking labor, and uh, I can get better wages for less effort. I'm only doing it because I want to learn. Will you teach me to build a cathedral? And 20 years from that date, the guy who was breaking rocks was dead. You know, he no longer had the strength to swing a hammer, and he died. The guy who was helping build the wall behind him was living a life of desperate poverty, but the guy who was helping build a cathedral was on his way to building his first cathedral. And that's pretty much what happens in our lives. Every day when we get up, we have a choice that we can break rocks or we can build a cathedral. And what I'm saying is, You have to identify the cathedral that you're going to build, and you're the only person who can do that. I can't do that for you. 
I can point out, however, that it's very important that you learn and define the cathedral that you are building. And when you do that, every day becomes a blast. And if you don't succeed in doing that, you know, you're subject to mood swings and you go up and down and by and large, you live a mediocre existence. Now, one cathedral is something that all of us are building, whether we know it or not, and that is the cathedral of our life, where we are fulfilled and find deep meaning. That's a cathedral, and every single one of us in, is engaged in building it, whether or not we know it. And if you are consciously building it, it becomes a so much easier, and you're so much more effective at doing so. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. I mean, I, I follow you. I want to play devil's advocate a little bit. And let's say you're in a hypothetical situation where you go to the doctor because of pain somewhere and you are diagnosed with cancer. How would that be a positive situation? How is that you know, something that you would regard as a positive thing? Depends on how you experience it. Let, let me give you a couple of examples. Uh, when Viktor Frankl was in the concentration camp, he met this girl with whom he had a long conversation, and she told him that she was kind of glad that what happened to her did, because uh, she was quite a spoiled brat, and she recognized and acknowledged that and said, if this hadn't happened to me, a spiritual dimension that I'm now aware of might never have uh, come my way. And uh, it was that and incidents like that that led Viktor Frankl to his lifelong quest, which is, why is it that under conditions of, conditions of extreme adversity, some people flourish and thrive and others fall apart? And uh, Christopher Reeve, in an interview that he gave shortly before he died, said that there was far more meaning in his life after the writing accident than when he was Superman. So, yes, it's not nice to have cancer, and obviously, if you could go around and change it, you would. But the fact that you have cancer does not mean you cannot have a meaningful life, and it is your challenge to work that cancer diagnosis into it, to not let it make you dysfunctional, but instead use it to accelerate your growth. And when you approach it from that perspective, it happens. How do we start to switch this perspective? How do we start to be more in the moment, be more in the now? Well, uh, in my book, Are You Ready to Succeed? There is a whole bunch, there are a whole bunch of exercises, and cumulatively, those exercises engineer a mind shift. And I simply mention my book because I organize those exercises in a progression. But there are lots of different uh, things that you can do which will essentially have the same impact. You have to learn to think differently. You have to learn to identify the mental models which are not serving you well and replace them with newer ones which take you in the direction that I have indicated. And if you are gently persistent in doing this, you will find that a switch does occur. You will see the world differently, and as multiple models of yours are replaced with better models, you become a different person. Why is this so difficult for most people? Why do you think we're trapped? I mean, other than the influence of society, our friends, peer pressure, and our own sort of internal thinking, why do you think this is so difficult for people to do? I don't think it's very difficult for people to do, Xavier. It's simply that people are not aware that there is this proven methodology that they can adopt and they haven't tried it. 
vast majority of people who take my programs find that they have major breakthroughs and quite a number of them feel that their entire lives have been transformed. It's a proven process, you just have to follow it. And the problem is not that it's difficult, the problem is people are not aware that this can be done and they're not aware that there are proven methodologies for doing this. So it's an education problem, not a, it's a very difficult thing problem. How do we change the rules of the game where, you know, where winning is not mandatory? That is a very good question. And uh, the short answer to that is for people to check. Here is something to think about. Let me present to you two situations. One situation is where you're feeling extremely good because you've won something. You've been promoted to CEO, you've won a major tennis tournament, and there are all these people applauding and saying, hey, this is absolutely wonderful, you did it. And in other words, you're feeling very good about yourself because there is some victory, and this victory is good because there are people all around you applauding and saying, yes, yes, more power to you. And the other is, think of a time when you were sitting quietly by yourself and uh, watching a beautiful rainbow, or you were having a beer with a very good friend of yours and the conversation was running deep and you weren't trying to one-up him, he wasn't trying to one-up you. You were simply relaxing in conversation with a good friend. So imagine those two sequences and say, which one do I really care more about? Which one feeds the soul? Hmm. And if you do that, you will find that what really feeds your soul is when you have that internal sense of fulfillment, and that internal sense of fulfillment is not dependent upon somebody else applauding you. And when you recognize that, then you start moving towards more of that and less of the other. But we live in a society which is stacked against this realization. So it absolutely is not easy. When we started this conversation, you said that, you know, you weren't happy with your place in corporate America. You know, why, why not just adopt one of these models that you yourself teach and, you know, be okay and independent of the outcome of, of the corporate politics that you face? If I had been aware of these models at that time, that's exactly what I would have done. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Um, I want to understand, you know, creativity, the idea of passion, and, you know, how that links into this. Because you, you talk about, you know, finding your passion, do what you love. This is what we hear a lot. What do you advise people in, in this sort of feedback loop? <laughs> this is not going to sit well with a lot, lot of people who listen to you, uh, who are listening to this podcast, Xavier, but I think that this business of finding your passion is uh, something that is seriously, seriously misleading, and it gets a lot of people hung up and I think does damage to many, many people. You've got to understand that passion does not exist outside you. You don't find your passion by, you know, searching for it. Passion does not exist in the job. It exists inside you. And if you don't succeed in finding a way to ignite it within you right where you are, you're never going to find it outside. 
So your job is to ignite the passion that is inside you and not go out in a search for passion. But when you succeed in igniting the passion within you, you'll be surprised at how quickly it takes over your life and it will rearrange the world outside. You know, you, you talk about positive thinking and how positive thinking, and I love this, how positive thinking can be bad for you. And, mm-hmm. you know, we've almost established this sort of church of, you know, positive thinking. We have to be positive all the time. What do you think this relates to and how do we get past this? Positive thinking, actually, uh, Xavier, is a variation of the if-then thinking. In our heads, we need to think positive because something happened which is negative. And because something happened which is negative, we have to counteract it by thinking positive. It's a little bit like you're on a teeter-totter and you're putting all the weight on one side of the teeter-totter, which is the positive side. Very difficult to do, and it doesn't work. Far better than positive thinking is to simply label things as they are. You know, we have a habit of saying some things are good and some things are bad. And understand that whenever an event occurs, it doesn't cause suffering. Suffering begins the moment you label that event, this is bad, this is terrible, I cannot bear it. And the moment you stick that label on it, at that instant, suffering begins. So, for example, you lose your job. Okay, you've got a lot of free time now. But if you lose your job and say, oh, my God, you know, how am I going to make my mortgage payments? My kid's college tuition is due. This is terrible. And the moment you say this is terrible, it's at that instant that suffering begins. So can you imagine any situation, can you remember any situation in your life that at the time it happened you thought was terrible, but you can now look back upon it and say, hey, this is actually pretty good. Hmm. Most people can. Mm -hmm. So if something happened in the past that at the time it happened you thought was terrible, but now you can look back and say it was pretty good, why are you in a hurry to label this bad, whatever is happening to you? Can you envisage some scenario by which in X years it could actually turn out to be pretty good. And if the answer to that is yes, why are you in a hurry to label it bad? And if you take the next stage and say, is there anything that I can do to actually make it good? And all of a sudden you moved from the realm of despair to the realm of possibility. This is something that is in every single one of us it's it's something that we can all do and when you do that you get out of the uh, positive thinking route because you don't have to think positive because nothing negative happens something happened you don't call it negative and if you don't call it negative you don't need to invoke positive thinking it's it's amazing. I mean, it makes sense. It it fits, you know. And let me go a little further sure, on that. Sure, of course, of course. Uh, imagine a child walking. So typically, this happens when an infant is somewhere between twelve and sixteen months old, and ten and sixteen months old, and it gets up and or tries to get up and take a step and falls down, and you know she cries. And uh, mommy or daddy runs up and says, oh, what happened, sweetheart, and kisses the spot and makes it well. 
and then she gets up again and falls again and cries again. After this happens three or four times, uh, mommy and daddy stop rushing to pick her up and she stops crying and she puts one unsteady foot in front of another unsteady foot and in bits and pieces eventually learns to walk. Now, what happens if each time an infant falls down, you say, oh, my God, she failed. She failed yet again. This is terrible. What kind of impact will it have on her? Let's get a psychiatrist to counsel her. Imagine that scenario. Mm -hmm. Ridiculous, isn't it? It's exactly the same way. Going through life, stuff is going to happen. When stuff happens, just label it stuff happened and move on. Mm -hmm. And when you do that, you don't need positive thinking. Oh, uh, please continue. I mean, you know, because I think it's important to really understand this and understand why positive thinking can have a detrimental effect and why our culture is so based on this idea of being positive or you know, just, just thinking positive all the time. First of all, it's very difficult. If something happens and you want to think positive, you're somehow taking something that you have labeled bad and trying to spin it into something good. And uh, sometimes it just doesn't work. Things remain the way they are. But if instead of labeling it uh, bad, you simply label it as this happened. So I got cancer. I have 20 days to live. I could go, oh, my God, this is so absolutely terrible. I only have 20 days to live. There are so many dreams I have and all of the things I want to accomplish and so on. This is terrible. And all of a sudden, I'm spiraling down to despair and probably taking a lot of my friends, relatives, and people close to me on that downward spiral. Mm -hmm. But if instead I simply say, okay, you know, yes, I didn't want to die in 20 days, but if 20 days is what I have, 20 days is what I have. This is the situation I'm faced with. Is there anything I can do in terms of uh, experimental medical treatments or whatever to push that 20 days uh, outward? And uh, am I willing to explore it? And if not, well, I have 20 days. How best am I going to make use of those 20 days? And uh, if I do that, then all of a sudden, it's not a tragedy. This happened. We always have the capacity to think of things not as this is terrible, but this happened. This is something that we have to actively cultivate. And the way you cultivate that is to be thinking about it all the time. So if anybody is listening to this podcast and there's something going on in your life and you're about to classify it as a tragedy, instead of labeling it a tragedy, simply label it as this happened. Okay, I will grant you that you would rather this didn't happen, but it did happen. So this happened. What are you now going to do about it? And when you do that, you move to a completely different emotional domain. Mm -hmm. You know, this might be a little bit off topic, but you know, I want to ask you about the idea of you know destiny or fate. It, you know, do you subscribe to these sort of narratives that our life is in an architectural design that? is outside of us and that we are sort of following this path where free will is, you know, kind of a not so much, not so clear. All right. These, Xavier, are all stories that we tell ourselves. I have complete free will to determine what I am going to do. That's a model. I am bound by my destiny and fate, and there is nothing that I can do to change my fate. That is a model. 
Whichever model you hold, if you look for evidence, you will find plenty of evidence that supports that this, in fact, is the way the world is. So my solution, and this is what I advocate to anybody listening to this podcast, is recognize that either of these is just a model. If it is a model that works for you, by all means, adopt it. If it's a model that doesn't work work for you, there are alternate models and you can pick up any one of those. So don't waste a whole lot of time thinking about, you know, are you constrained or do you have free will? Exercise free will that you think you have. Mm -hmm. And if it is constrained by destiny, then you may or may not recognize the constraint, but just move as if you had free will. And if you get the outcome you wanted, wonderful. If you don't get the outcome you wanted, still wonderful. You still have the learning and growth from the effort that you put in. And that is something that every one of us can do. How important is you know, surrender to this process? Surrender is very important, but most people misunderstand surrender. They think surrender means that I'm going to lie back and not do anything and basically become a vegetable or complacent. That's not what true surrender is. True surrender is complete acceptance of the fact that outcomes are outside your control and they have always been outside your control and they will always be outside your control. That is the nature of the universe we're in. But because the outcome is outside our control does not mean that we do not try our level best to achieve an outcome. We are in the human predicament, and as long as we are in the human predicament, we have a vision of this is the way the the world should be. Mm -hmm. As long as we have a vision of this is the way the world should be, we will try our level best to achieve that vision. That is incumbent upon us. Surrender means that we accept that we may or may not reach our vision, but that does not absolve us of the responsibility to try our level best to achieve that. And when we try our level best to achieve that, our benefit, the gain that we have, is the growth that is engendered, that is engendered in us by the effort that we put in. And when we recognize that, and work in that manner, we find that every day is a blast. So that is what I mean by surrender. Surrender is acknowledging that the that the outcome is something over which we do not have any control. We never had any control, and we never will have any control. But we act as if we have control while accepting that we don't have control. This is something that's very important. We embrace the paradox. Hmm. You know, I, I find it intriguing. And you know, when, when I heard your, your lecture at the conference, I, I really wanted to bring you on to this program for that reason. And you know, something else that you talk about is this search for meaning. You, know, you brought up Viktor Frankl earlier, the man's quest for meaning. You know, why is this necessary? Why do we build this construct of creating meaning for our lives? Like it... <laughs> You're taking me deeper and deeper, Xavier, so <laughs> I'm going to come right out and contradict myself. 
we as human beings are stuck in our minds and we have this thing called logic and we are constantly trying to use logic to solve all problems. And we have this insatiable quest which says, why did this happen? What is the meaning of this? Why is there so much sorrow and suffering in the world? Why did God make the world? And you know, a whole bunch of things. And logic, of course, always takes us into paradox. You know, we have invented a God and this God is all powerful. Well, if God is all powerful, can he construct a wall that's so high that he cannot jump over it? And we always run into these conundrums of logic. And behind all of that is the insistence that there has to be a meaning, there has to be a purpose. What if there isn't? Because ultimately what happens, Xavier, is that there is this great unity, which has been called different things in different traditions, but it's an underlying substratum. It's like the ocean. And each one of us is a wave on that ocean. The wave comes out of the ocean, it exists in time and space, and it sinks back into the ocean. So the wave comes from the ocean, goes back into the ocean, and is the ocean. So if you identify with the ocean, then there is no problem, there is no sorrow, there is no suffering. The ocean has been, always will be. So that is the substratum that we're all a part of. And the problem is that we don't identify with the ocean, we identify with the wave. And the wave is in time and space, and it will disappear. So it's from the wave that we say, why did this happen? What is the meaning? What is the purpose? And maybe there is no purpose. You know, there is this ocean. It always was. It always will be. It's playing around endlessly in innumerable permutations and combinations. And that's just the way it is. Hmm. You know, it's, it's... So don't get hung up on what is the meaning and what is the purpose of all of this. That's an intellectual trap in which you could find yourself stuck forever yeah like you said you know it's it's simple but it doesn't make it easy i think that's an important distinction i did say it was simple i never said it was easy you talk about this whole process in in your courses in your books and is there something that you've learned through the years that people do or repeat often that you see many people making the mistake of that you you think is common Oh, one very common mistake that people make, and I make it myself, is that we believe the world is real. That, you know, there is this thing and it happened to me and I didn't have anything to do with it. The world is real, but it is not the reality. It is a reality. And we constructed that a reality with our mental chatter and our mental models. And if we don't like the way the world is, then we can deconstruct the parts of it that are not working and reconstruct it, and we can do this again and again. This is simple. I've explained, expressed it to you in 30 seconds or less, but this is something that actually would solve a great many problems that a great many people have. And they never recognize that there is such a simple answer to their solution, such a simple solution to their problems. A lot of this is reinforced by the people around us, the people that yes. are close to us by, you know, yeah, get that promotion. And, you know, I, I find many people when they do get that promotion or that raise, 
they're much much less you know happy if that's their goal they're much less content with their lives after this idea of some arbitrary accomplishment that they placed in front of them absolutely correct i want to ask you about you talked about mastery and different masters that you studied was there someone that you gained the most from oh yes i'll give you a couple uh, one of the people who had a very, a very profound influence on me was an Indian sage called Ramana Maharshi. And if I had to pick a single figure who uh, I'd say was a seminal influence on me, that would be Ramana Maharshi. Two other people who had a profound impact on me, one is a uh, Jesuit priest. His name is Father Anthony DeMello. Mm-hmm. And the other is Baba Ramdas, who wrote the book Be Here Now, which was one of the uh, big books to come out of the counterculture revolution of the 60s. Sure. And that and the teachings of Ramdas did have a profound impact on me. And there are many others. And for the others, what I would recommend to your readers is go to my website, which is www.therauinstitute.com. Click on the resources site and click on the manifesto. And in there, I have a, a bibliography. And a section of that bibliography is called Life-Changing Books. And that will give you a list of uh, thinkers who have influenced me. Yeah, Dr. Rao, I found this conversation really fascinating. And if there's someone listening to the show that is focused on that outcome dependence, and they're, they're looking for that, that next push for, for their job, they're, they're, they're career-oriented, I mean, what do you say to that, that type of thinking? What do you say to that mental model? Uh, what I would say is, hey, listen, The important thing is not whether you get that job or that promotion or whatever it is you're looking for. The important thing is, do you have a deep sense of well-being? Are you anchored in that? The knowledge that you're okay, you have always been okay, and you always will be okay. And that is where you want to get into. And getting a job or not getting the job, either way, is not going to get you there. That is something that you have to realize internally. Focus your attention on trying to get to that space, and the job situation will take care of itself. Just one last question here. You know, I want to talk about gratitude. I mean, this, this to me is very important to really bring this up and, and talk about this. You mentioned this in your book and in your work. You know, how important is it for us to be just simply grateful for the things in our lives? Uh, I think that it's extremely important for us to be grateful. In my book, Are You Ready to Succeed? I have a whole section on appreciation and gratitude. And uh, I want to go to the question that you just asked me. You said, how important is it for us to be grateful for the stuff that happens to us or the stuff that we have? Mm -hmm. That's a very good starting point, but it's only a starting point because whatever you're grateful for can be stripped from you. Mm. So you're grateful for good health and you get hit by a truck and become a quadriplegic. You're grateful because you have a home to live over and uh, you know there is a tornado or a massive volcanic uh, eruption and your home is gone. Whatever you're grateful for can be stripped from you. So eventually, I would like everyone who's on this podcast to be grateful, period. To be grateful, not grateful Mm-hmm. So this is actually an elaboration and a further step. 
it's okay to be grateful for something as a baby step, a starting point, but eventually you want to be grateful, not grateful for. I love it, Dr. Rao. I really, really appreciate your time today, sir. Where can where can people get to your work? Where can people get to the website and find your work? Okay, the easiest way is for someone to go to my website, and that's www.theraoinstitute.com. And when they go there, there is a button called Join Our Community. And if they click on that and put in their email address and uh, other details, then they will hear from me. On my website also is my blog, and they can, uh, you know, it goes back, a couple of years and there are many, many entries and they can actually read my blog there. Mm -hmm. And they will periodically hear from me if uh, they like this podcast or the kind of views that I am talking about. I also have programs, both online and live programs and details of that are on my website. So if they find that this calls to them, they have an opportunity to go deeper. Sure. Are are there any any events? Because I know you travel around a bit. Are there any events that you're speaking at coming up? There are always events that I'm speaking at. Some of them are open, some of them are closed, and uh, the open events I will I do list on my website. If they're on my mailing list, then they will hear about, if they go to the Join Our Community button and click it, and if they register, then they'll learn about my open events. Great. We will for sure direct people to that. Dr. Rao, thank you so much for your time. Please visit Dr. Rao's site. We will make that link available for you below. The book is called Are You Ready to Succeed? And Xavier, you might want to direct them to my other book also. It's called Happiness at Work. And Happiness at Work has many more exercises as well. We will for sure do that, Dr. Rao. Thank you so much again. We are going to get out of here. Thank you so much for listening. You will hear from us next week.